There we go. Put it to this side of the room. This is where I can see everybody. All right. That's the thing. You know, you deal with uh, wherever the Lord puts you, right? And the Lord gave us tea time, and that's been a gift. Um, you know, we've discussed this over and over, but I just always keep saying it. Maybe I need to hear it, too. You know, one of the things that uh, the reason why we stayed here, we've been here for three years, uh, and we just signed a lease with the suite next to us for another three and we, we could have <clears throat> pursued a building, but our idea behind this, and one of the reasons why we're going to talk so much about the Holy Spirit, the reason why we've been talking about the gospel so much, is this constant going back and reminding us of why we are here, right? You can go to a church that has everything already set up. You know, right now it's like you're coming to the restaurant uh, or coming to the business when it's first getting started. They don't have it all together. Everything's not in formation. And you can go to, there's a lot of, the thing about, you know, restaurants, there's a lot of them. You can go to a lot of them that are already past that point or stage in their, in their life, right? But the idea of when we come here, the idea is trying not to just necessarily be something different or some consumer-based deal that makes us stand out as much as it is. The one vision that we've had here is to return, to return to something more simple, more simple. That's not lost in translations. Every church is doing some outstanding work here. Make no mistake about that. But one of the things that I had learned in my pastoring time was how much that I found that I found myself in the church doing a lot of the work and staying busy, but it didn't always seem kingdom. It didn't always seem eternal uh, or productive. I did a lot of work, but I don't know that it necessarily advanced me anything. I stayed busy is what I did. And uh, one of the frustrations with that is I noticed like things that we noticed over the years that led us to this place, even what we're about to talk about today, and, and today we're going to deal with the call, being called by the Holy Spirit. One of the things uh, that, I, that resonated with me is, is how much money we would spend on seeing people or, or giving to people or doing an outreach or doing something and not seeing any eternal fruit from it. And when I mean eternal fruit, I don't care if they come to my church. I care, I care if they are, get saved. I care if they not just get saved, because there's a lot of people that say the words of salvation and we count them, but they're not counted in the kingdom. There's a difference. But, but be, become followers of Jesus Christ, right? Become followers. Last I saw, I mean, Jesus, the, the, the 12 guys, he said, follow me. They followed him, and then they, then they didn't just follow. They led the way for other followers. And I really believe that's the example we're supposed to be, right? The people that we create followers from, we lead to Jesus, right? Jesus says, okay, now you disciple them. All right, well, we're going to disciple them. But what do they become? It can't stop at the words. It can't stop at the altars. It has to go past that. There has to be fruit after that. And as I get older, and maybe it's because I'm getting older and... Uh, uh, statistics and, and the numbers for salvation, all that stuff matter less to me. What matters more to me is things that last, things that are eternal. Uh, I focus on the things that were found in, in Genesis, that, you know, like a relationship, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, they had relationship. So relationships are eternal because the one thing you get to carry to heaven with you is not your money, your house, your cars, it's your friends, right? It's your, it's your, if you're married, it's your, it's your spouse, Right? You get to carry people to heaven with you. So that's an eternal thing. So let's not focus on house, cars, and how to treat. Listen, those are things you can steward for a small little speck of time on the earth. What you need to steward, more important than those things, are each other. Right? Because that's eternal. How you treat somebody here is important because you're going to see them somewhere else. Right? 
How many of you would be embarrassed about the way you've treated some people if you had to see them in heaven around Jesus? Like, oh, hey, hey, how are we doing? And then be like, I know you was mean as heck to me on earth. Like, no way, right? It'd be like awkward, <laughs> you know? And I think it's even awkward for Jesus because he knows too. He's like, oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> that's embarrassing. They're like faking it in front of me. You know, you're lying. Come on. Um, there needs to be some authenticity here. And I think all, everybody in church struggles with that. We all want authenticity. We want something real. Well, it starts with us. And we've got to admit when we're not. We've got to admit where we're not. And this is this kind of journey that we have here at Mosaic. You know, we, we, we stayed here so that we could do more for others, not for ourselves. If we want to do something for ourselves, we would have bought a building. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to want a building. It's not a bad thing to have a building. We have a suite over here. It's not... Exactly like what we probably would want, where we never have to set up and tear down, and there's this lot of work that we don't have to do, where we can just kind of come and go. I mean, well, we can't just come and go, because we, now we have to set up and tear down. Now we exist to serve something, and that's not always fun. It isn't. Uh, it means giving up your time. It means giving up your money, and sometimes, you know, we broke a TV a while back. We had to buy another TV. It's just how it was. We were all happy. Some of us were all happy that the TV lasted three years, considering what they've been through. I mean, honestly, it's amazing that half of this equipment has lasted considering how many times it's been set up and tore down. It's been, it was carried in a trailer through three summers in Texas. The, any electronics survives that. I have no idea. Like, I think sol solder just melts in there. You know what I mean? Like, I have no idea. But it, it survived, right? God has a plan for us. God has a plan for us. And we may seem small at times, but let me remind you, like we're reading about the gospel where the small individual, this small group changed the world. We're reading now into the book of Acts and book of Acts. What are they? They are a small little group uh, sitting together in a room, praying, waiting on the Holy Spirit. And then uh, uh, revival breaks out. Uh, just if you read the Bible, if you read the Bible, who would ever want to be a big group? I'm just be honest. Show me one big group where God's like, I'm totally for you. When Gideon got a big group, he's ready to go to fight. What did God say? That's too big. Wait a minute. Numbers can win a battle, God. I don't know if you've like done this fighting before. God's like, I don't, have, I don't need numbers to win. right? And, and God shows that by what? Taking Gideon's numbers and dwindling it down till it's this small little group. And what does Gideon say? We're never going to win. right? He's a little overdramatic there. No, God says, I don't need all that. Because that way, when it's a small number and it seems impossible, who gets all the glory? God does, right? God does, right? Lots of money can solve a lot of things, but how come it doesn't? You know, I always hear about all these celebrities giving money to all these things, yet there's still poverty. You know, yet there's still water it needs to be in some places, right? There's enough money out there just amongst the celebrities to end some of that, right? But I still see it because it takes money to finance people to go over because they're not going over there. It's easy for them to give their money. So listen, all the world's problems aren't accomplished just by lots of money, celebrity status, being viral, being known. They're actually accomplished through God using the little man, the little person, the one who doesn't want to be known, the humble person. And it takes a lot to be that in this culture. This is a culture that wants to go viral. They want to be famous. They do crazy stuff to be famous, to be famous. And this is a, this is, this is the thing that's always working against us, this idea, this lust for self, right? And, and, and in our church here, this little small church, you know, people sometimes say, well, man, I, you know, you know when they, I talked to a guy who was the gas guy, we were getting the gas turned on here the other day, and he was like, oh, man, it's a neat little thing you got going on here. And he's like, man, I like you're doing this small thing. And he goes, 
I hadn't, I hadn't heard of you much. I said, he goes, I'd kind of heard of you over here, but I hadn't heard much. I said, well, that's good because we haven't advertised a whole bunch, so that's awesome. Hey, I said, well, what did you hear? He goes, well, I was hearing how this, it was a Help for Heroes thing. I heard you're doing this Help for Heroes, you do this deal for veterans, and that's the first thing I heard of you. Well, that's great. That's what I love is that somebody else told you about us who's doing something and it wasn't us. I didn't have to advertise you. I didn't have to like... at all. What they really want is just the conversion. I just want you to say that you got saved so that I can say I got I saved you, right? Or, or that, that this is how many people got saved, but that's not the way it is. There has to be room for discipleship. There has to be room for growth, right? God calls individuals uh, uh, like me, like you, to help people grow. It doesn't stop at just uh, one section. It moves on. It moves on to being called and called to do what? Well, to be gifted in some form or fashion. You are gifted to do the work that God has called you to do. Now, a lot of that is self-discovery. And this is what we're going to talk about today. Everything that, that we've been pressing towards is, is it basically is a church that's full of the Holy Spirit. And the church, you know, uh, the early church wasn't built upon clever marketing or advertising. It was built upon the truth that, and this is it. The, 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 the church is built upon the truth that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. It, and, it, and it was made known, and it got its word out there by preaching and teaching. The early church didn't have gimmicks and, uh, uh, that we use today. They just told basic, simple, understandable truth. I mean, go through and read the book of Acts. The sermons there are preached there. They're really just simply the accounts of Jesus' life. Jesus said this. This is the way it is. And if you received it, right, it was just simple stuff, right? There isn't anything there um, that tries to tell someone how to make their life easier. <laughs> Go read Peter's sermons. You won't like them, right? We call that fire and brimstone. We wouldn't like Peter's sermons today. We wouldn't want to go to that guy. He, he doesn't preach how to you know, make this relative to our life, right? It, we, it, they don't preach comfort. They don't preach uh, making our life easy. If anything, there's preaching of ownership is what it is. That's what I call it. Preaching of ownership, where we understand that we are the sinner. I tell people the hardest thing I have to do, church is easy. The only hard thing I have to do is preach the gospel. It's easy to preach it. It's hard to make you understand it, because the first thing I have to do is offend you. The first thing the gospel requires is that I offend you. I have to say, yeah, I know you think you're good, but you're not. You're totally not. You're actually selfish. You're a selfish human being. And you're sinful. You have wickedness in you. It's so bad that you don't even see it. You don't even see it. One of the quickest ways I say this to a Christian or like somebody who's really like maybe is understand Christian or maybe they're in and out, right? Try praying. When you pray, is the first five or ten minutes about you or are you actually praying? Are you doing the laundry list of things in your head? That's me, by the way. I'm not talking to anybody. I can talk to me about this, right? Are you doing this thing in your head where you totally get lost track and you're thinking about what you're doing that day? 
That's when self rises up in you and says, I don't care. Listen, God, take us back seat while I think about me. I mean, that's, that's some ugly truth there. But this is, it's so deeply rooted in us that we can't even tell the, the bad parts from the good parts of us, right? The, the good parts are the parts that Jesus created, right? The bad parts are our self and the flesh and all these things that war against the spirit are constantly fighting back and forth. So the first thing in the gospel we have to address is there's this preaching of ownership that we have to take ownership of our sin, that our sin placed Jesus upon the cross. We, we have to own the fact that our sin not only placed him there, but had him killed. I mean, make no mistake, you're the person holding the hammer, you're the person holding the nail. Our comfort can only be found in his resurrection because it's through the resurrection that we can see the purpose and power in Christ to forgive us and remove our sin. That's the whole idea. That's why the resurrection is so celebrated, because without it, there is no forgiveness of sin. He is not God, right? Nothing is accomplished without it. Uh, Peter was able to do this in such a way when you read in the book of Acts the sermon there and then there's another one that he preaches with John there as he's getting ready to talk to the Pharisees and you know what the Pharisee says they say the same thing you want to blame me for everything that's happened to Jesus yes actually what they say is you're trying to put his blood on our hands if I was Peter in that moment you know I think I would have said I'm trying to put blood over everybody because it's only by the blood that we're ever going to be saved and we have to recognize our part to play in the blood so all of this work, even that Peter discovered, all this work that Paul walked through, all of this is done and projected and pushed forth in purpose and passion by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And this is where we find ourselves here this morning, searching for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is where I want to drive us this year, uh, where we see people being baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues, to be able to know that you've been baptized now. God has given you a purpose and passion to be a witness to all and everyone here in this community. Uh, We're not looking for anything new. I'm not trying to say, hey, we're looking for this new thing. I'm not so hungry for uh, a new thing. But all I'm asking for is what God has placed in the Bible are we allowed to witness. God, can you do what you've once done? Now, I don't care if it shows up exactly like Acts 2. I don't care if it shows up exactly like Acts 9 or Acts 19. What I care about is like, just do what you're going to do in our day, right? Some of you have already been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Maybe some of you haven't. My hope is that this whole church is eventually baptized in the Holy Spirit for this one cause and cause only, that the work of Christ may be found in you. That you may perform the cause of Christ, right? That you may go out and be like a Peter and be like a Paul. The baptism of the Holy Spirit changes a person's life from becoming from being a hearer of the word to a doer of the word. That's the necessity, right? That the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8 is going to be allow you to be a witness. Someone who does something. Someone who tells others about Jesus. This is when we'll function in the Holy Spirit is when we begin to tell others about Jesus, we become hearers to doers. And what this world needs right now, more than anything, are doers. We've got a lot of hearers. A lot of hearers. We see this transformation constantly in the Bible, and it begins with Jesus' very own disciples. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke refers to the followers as G- of Jesus as disciples. This is what they're called, right? And, and that's, that's pretty simple. These, they're kind of marked as followers of Christ because they follow and practice what Jesus taught. This is what disciples mean. A, a disciple means a follower or student of a teacher. They were disciples. However, in the book of Acts, after the ascension, Luke, the same person who writes the book of Luke, now calls them apostles. Something has happened. 
Something has changed. They are no longer those who follow Jesus. They are now apostles. Apostle, by today's definition, is someone who vigorously pioneers and advocates a particular policy or a cause. In this case, they were the followers of Jesus Christ, teaching and preaching in a movement. They, they, they ushered it in. So what shifted their spiritual positions from disciple to apostle? Well, the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit did that. They, they were transformed by the Holy Ghost. Transformed. And, and look at the simplicity of that. They were all together in one place, just like us, all together in one place. They were praying. They were waiting. They were devout in their belief. They were obedient to the Lord. This made them a follower, right? However, when the Holy Spirit began to pour outward into the world and to others, the divine call to preach and proclaim began to bubble up inside them. This is the Acts 1-8 happening in real time. And when Peter preaches his first sermon, he's not ready. Okay, I mean, look at the sermon. He's not, he's not ready. It's not three-pointed. He's not relating this to your life. He's not, right? He hadn't practiced it. He wasn't speaking it in the mirror like, well, I'm waiting. Somebody reel back the curtain and let me out. Right? He didn't go to any schools for it. He's not from the seminary or anything like that. He was compelled by the Holy Spirit and the divine call upon his life to do so. In this act, he became an apostle. He became an apostle. Or simpler, in the biblical definition of apostle, is one who is sent. One who is sent. And who sent him? Well, Jesus did. Jesus sent him. And the Holy Spirit equipped him. Let me say it again. Jesus sent him and the Holy Spirit equipped him. And that's an entirely supernatural work. Well, how did this happen? And this is, this is what we're talking about this morning. This is what we're going to wrestle with. How do we go from disciple to something more? To something more. What does that look like? And I don't want to overthink this either, nor do I think it has to be difficult. I think, I think we can get into a lot of things that look difficult. I, 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 if I were to simplify the call of God that transforms us from hearers to doers, I'd just break it down into two types of callings. Let's just make it easy. The first being the call to follow Jesus, and the second being the call to do ministry, or the call for ministry. <clears throat> Many times these two are confusing. However, there always, uh, always will be these two. There's no way around that. Why? Because the call to follow is what drives the call to ministry, period. You don't get, you have to have the following. That's the primary, to have the secondary. If your primary is poor, you're never going to have a secondary, the primary is, is, is the most important one. So let's deal with that. The first one, the simple call to just follow Christ. Follow Christ. The original call that Jesus gives every person. Matthew 9, uh, uh, verse 9. He says this, follow me. He's talking to Matthew. He says, follow me and be my disciple. Well, so Matthew, he gets up and he follows him. Really simple. Jesus calls everyone to follow the same way. Right? I think we're looking for some exponential thing. Jesus is going to come to us and say, hey, get up. I can't, you can't wait till I got... Like, Jesus has to offer you something. Like, man, I'm telling you, get up and follow me. Because if you follow me, your life's going to be like this. And your life's going to be like this. And your life's going to be like this. And Matthew, I'm going to train... I love how Jesus doesn't promise nothing. Totally different from a preacher today. Man, if you follow Jesus, your life will be transformed into this. You will have this. Your finances will be like this. You'll have health, and you'll have wealth, and you'll have all this stuff, and you'll have everything. No, Jesus said, hey, follow me. Follow me. You know what? The other guys, they didn't even like Matthew. Like, man, are you sure we want this guy? We don't even like this guy. Right? He's a tax collector. He's a traitor to his own people. We don't even like him. But Jesus walks right up to him and says, follow me. 
follow me. And sometimes, guys, it's that simple. It really is that simple. Not a lot of promises on the back end of that. If you come to Jesus for all these things, did you come to Jesus at all? What do you want from him? For Matthew, he just simply said, be my disciple. Just asking you that, not offering you anything else. Be my disciple. So good. Every single one of us are really called in this fashion. If you're here today and you hear my voice, this is your primary calling. Everything you do within the scope of your life will be built upon this platform first and foremost. That you are a follower of Jesus, simply a disciple of Jesus first. First. Is there an abundant life for those who follow Christ? Yes. Will you be blessed by following Christ? Yes. There is some uh, uh, spiritual after things that happen. Yes. But what Jesus asked from you simply and first and foremost, be my disciple. Follow me. And it's not as easy. It's not that easy. Uh, I think we paint it to be a little easier than maybe it is. There actually are some requirements. Let me just name the big one. All right? It requires that you repent. You have to repent to be a disciple. You, you seriously, legitly, in your heart of hearts must repent and seek forgiveness for your sins. That means you have to acknowledge your own wickedness and selfish thoughts. This is what stands between everyone and eternal life. Really, the only thing that stands there is you. The only thing keeping someone from eternal life is you. You have to lower your pride down long enough to say, you're right, I'm wrong, right? <clears throat> Lord, so I repent. I repent. I, I want what you have, right? I want forgiveness. Jesus offers it. And what's great is he offers it with no condemnation. There's not going to be like, told you so. It's not, Jesus is not going to say, I told you so. It's not going to be like that. He says, listen, there's no condemnation. You get a clean slate if you can be truthful about this, if you can admit that you're wrong, if you can admit that you're struggled there, right? Once you repent, the life of discipleship can now blossom and go forth. And here's where you begin to emulate Jesus throughout your life so that others can see Jesus in you. Because one thing you start to realize, if your eyes have truly been opened and you truly repent, then you see yourself now for the first time of how you really are, right? In, you see your wickedness, you see your sin, right? You know that the Holy Spirit now is coming to you in the sense of you've been quickened to, to have an understanding of this. Now you have wisdom of this, right? There's going to be a transformation in your life. I no longer want to live like this now. I choose to want to model the life of Christ. And so now there are certain things in my life I'm no longer going to do. I know for me, when I first got saved, I knew real quick, I can't keep hanging around my friends. Not because my friends are bad people, but I'm bad people when I'm with them. I do things out of pressure. I do things that's not their fault that I do them. I can't help it because I'm weak. I'm weak. So I had to let some friends go. I had to quit listening to certain types of music. Why? Because I know that they're helping depression. Half the reason I, what is it? I heard the lyrics the other day from a song called Whiskey and You, and it resonates with me because one of the things it says is I drink because I'm lonely, but I'm lonely because I drink. Welcome to the cycle. Like, I've ne like when I heard that song, I was like, man, is that the story of my childhood? I say my childhood, my 20s and 30s. They're struggling. Early 30s, right in there. My whole 20s was that right there. Why am I living in such depression? I can't imagine why I'm living in such depression. And that's how it was. Right? All of a sudden, I can see, though, I don't want that. 
I don't want that. And it wasn't easy at first. It wasn't like it was like, okay, let's just stop drinking. It's going to be awesome. No, it wasn't awesome. It never is. It's like when you first tithe. When you first tithe, I promise you this, something's going to fall out of the sky and hit your car. Be like, uh, uh, literally, I just, my car just got hit by a NASA satellite. As soon as I started tithing, I need like this amount of money right now. And I'm like, because I'm tithing, Lord, this is what happened. I can't, in this, you're going to, listen, it happens like that. It never fails. When you start tithing, that's when bad things start to happen, right? And then eventually, listen, if you hold fast to tithing, what will happen is eventually the devil's like, okay, they're not going to give up. By the way, he does give up. The devil does. And eventually he'll just forget about you. Like, there, it's too late for them. They're already so sold out on tithing, I can't do anything about it now. Let's work on the other aspects they're weak about in life. He still struggles relationing. You know what? Let's send him more people to stab him in the back. You know? And, and listen, we love that kind of stuff, too, because what's the things we tell each other all over Facebook? Please, Lord, I, I don't need these people who stab me in the back, da da all the time. And all I can think now as a pastor, as I've gotten older and a little bit more mature, is I think about how Jesus thinks of these things. People stab me in the back all the time. <laughs> I, <laughs> and yet I still love them. I think about how Jesus calls us to people like this. The older we get, maybe the more mature we get, God send us right back into the places we used to come from to go save people. Because nobody's going to know those places like we will. You know, me and Michael talk a lot about the, the type of kids he reaches versus the type of kids that I reach. Some of you saw me youth pastor. You know that the type of kids that I'm going to go reach are not going to be athletic. Some of you would say, amen, you know that. Like, I didn't get hardly any athletes as a youth pastor. What kids did I get? I got those emo kids. Kids that are putting makeup on at 12. I'm not talking about the girls. Right. Right. I'm, 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 I got the kids who like don't, their parents are in prison. The kids who are we're having to go walk through drug rehabilitation with. I got the kids who are struggling with alcohol and their moms aren't there. So their boyfriends are like living boyfriends at their own houses. You know, I got kids that are, hey, uh, I, this one kid for real, you want to talk about feeling responsibility. We, we had to, this one girl would not get off her phone. We had to escort her out, make her mom picked her up. Within a year later, she was pregnant. Like, you know how responsible I feel? Like, maybe I should have tolerated the phone. Like, these are things that, these are the type of kids that I reach out to. I reach out to the kids that were a lot like me. Defiant, strong-willed, totally loving the darkness rather than the light. You know, these are the kids. Listen, I, I started calling victories. As today, they're not on drugs. And they at least have a job held down. Thank you, Jesus. They're somewhat productive in society. Praise the Lord. Right? I, but... But the, the nature, this is what God gives us. He tends to send us back into the places where we come from. Because nobody will know it like we will. And what do we remember? How Jesus pulled us out of there. And every time I walked back in there amongst those kids, I could love them. You know why? Because Jesus pulled me out of there. I'd look at a strong-willed kid, still do today, where some of it would drive you crazy. i look at that and go, that could be a future businessman. You know why? Because they're so strong-willed, they might actually make it. They're so strong-willed, they might become a great manager. You know what? That person who's confrontational, that 16-year-old you can't stand because they're so mouthy and not scared of you, my gosh, they might make a great supervisor if Jesus could get a hold of them because they're not going to be scared of any employee. Matter of fact, employees ought to worry. They'll get something done. Some, some of these kids are madly gifted. It's unbridled, but they are gifted. Nobody can see that like somebody who's been there. You know where you grow up. You know the friends that you used to have. You know those things. This is where God came to you. In the middle of all that, God came to Matthew as the tax collector, the one who's the traitor to his own people. And God said, Matthew, follow me. Be my disciple. Matthew follows. Who do you think Matthew went back to? You think he went back to the poor and everybody else? Matthew went back to the people he knew he'd relate to probably. 
I'm sure he went back to people he knew, man. Who, who's he going to preach to more than anybody? Those who probably feel like traitors too. <clears throat> it's not easy. It's not easy being a disciple. Jesus set the bar really high. We watered it down a lot, but Jesus actually set the bar super high on the requirements of discipleship, right? Even I do. I'm sometimes very lax about it when I sometimes probably should be more harsh, right? Let me, just for instance, stark reminders, Luke, Luke 9, Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. It reads, if any of you wants to be my follower, this is Jesus, you must give up your own way. Give up your way, he says, take up your cross daily and then follow me. Take up your cross. Take up this thing that's going to kill you, right? I want you to carry this so you're constantly killing yourself while you're following me, right? right? What are you killing off? Your own way. That's what you're killing off. Your own way. Your selfishness is dying constantly as you walk with Christ. I want you to walk with me and kill off your selfish desires while you walk with me so that you can take upon the things that I desire. For me, this looked like in ministry when I first got into ministry or was even thinking about ministry and really was kind of running from ministry or the idea of this divine call upon my life. It looked, I remember sitting down and, and, and I was working my hunting business and was thinking about one day I was going to own this property. I literally had like a good 500 acres found in Oklahoma that me, my dad, and my brothers could have jumped in on together. And I was really trying to hustle to bring them in together. And I, I had just done some devotional stuff on Leviticus, uh, but I was working through a devotion in Ezekiel. And as I was in Ezekiel, God was coming down on the, on the tribe of Levi. He was coming against these Levitical priests. Ezekiel was basically telling them God was so angry with them because they owned houses and land. And I was like, well, I'm not a Levite. And I started looking up why God was angry. Why would God be angry if somebody owned a house and a land? Well, then, it, then I saw it in Leviticus, right? You go back and you look. There are 12 tribes of Israel. 12 tribes of Israel. And the way it went was this. When Israel was given to them, 11 of the tribes were given all the property. The twelve, the Levites, they were given the duty of the Lord. They were to be the ministers to the Lord for the people. In exchange, so they could live to do the things that they do, 10% from all the other tribes were collected so the Levites could minister directly to the Lord. What the Levites got or what God was trying to tell the Levites, it's not the 10%. That's not what they got. Right now, that's what they, they got to live on, right? But what they got, what allowed them to live off the ten, what got them to ten percent, was what the Lord really gave them. He gave them Himself. What He was trying to tell the Levites, it's not. Listen, you get this ten percent, you should be living off this ten percent. That's not what He was saying. He was trying to tell the Levites, I gave you the best piece of property of all, eternal real estate. I gave you my heart. I gave you my heart, but you lust after these other things. You have what they don't have. They have property, and they lust after power, and they lust after all these things that come with stuff. You have me. That's what he was trying to tell. That's why he was upset with the priest. You have me. Let go of these things and take me. I'm rightfully yours. We declared it from the beginning. I would be yours. Yours would be mine, right? And then because, because you have devoted your life to me, they'll do this for you to make sure you're okay. That's how he originally set up the priesthood. And so I began, I like bawled my eyes out. Joy comes in and it's like, what's going on? I'm like, I can't ever own property. I'm never going to own a house. I, 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 I'm not going to own that. The first priority for the rest of my life is always going to be the Lord. 
regardless. I might never, I rent a home right now. I've rented for 10 years since I've been here. People have asked me, I said, why don't you buy? Because I want to do whatever the Lord tells me to do. If the Lord was to tell me to leave tomorrow, I'd leave tomorrow. I love you, but I'd have to go. Period. I chose to follow him first. First. God is first in my house. I want land. Bad. God knows the desires of my heart. The irony is God sends me to Marble Falls, and the Assembly of God had 40 acres to which they asked me to manage. That's what God does. God sends you to a place that has property and says, here, we want you to take care of this property like it's yours. What? What? Don't tell me God doesn't see the desires of your heart. But he never promised that. God never said to me, Jim, if you'll just follow me, I'm going to give you those things that you want. That's not how it works. He says, follow me and be my disciple. God, listen, I think this, God births desires in your heart, but he wants you to have them the right way. God wanted me to make him first. And by making him first, the rest would take place. But it doesn't matter if I have them or not, because I have the Lord. Primary call, we are to be followers of Jesus Christ. If it isn't hard enough to take up the cross, follow Jesus, Jesus down in, in Luke 9 again, a little farther down, he explains it uh, to another young man this way. That, and to me, I think this would even be more shocking. Uh, Luke 9, 57 through 62. He says, as they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. All right, a little zealot there. All right. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to, to lay his head. He said to another person, come follow me. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, let me first return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts his hand to the plow then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. You tell me, is there standards? Is there standards? I know we don't like this. But Jesus begins to question loyalty. He begins to throw that out like, hey, it's kind of a big deal. If you say you're going to follow me, do you trust me? Do you trust me that I know what's best? Do you trust me that I know what's right? Do you trust me? He's asking us to press forward and upwards towards a higher calling in him. There are always going to be people to miss they're always going to be people to say goodbye to. But at some point, there has to be a drive in our discipleship that presses us forward. To place our hand upon the plowshare and to not stop until it's done. That's what's going to hold me here. One of the things that I begin to pray about with the Lord here, as I saw some great pastors here, senior pastors that have been here over 30 years and see the, the value of their work, as I begin to pray, Lord, let me be a pastor that tenures a place for a life. So one of the early things early on I've been praying and I've, I've continued to pray and it's the, it's the prayer of my heart to hear and I honestly think God's going to honor it uh, at least, at, least at, at this stage I still do. I've, I've been here 10 years, a full decade now for me and I told the Lord, give me 30 years here. Give me every bit of 30. Guys, I still got 20 to go and I'm just, I'm just getting started. I am just getting started. I have, big, I have big ideas and big dreams for Marble Falls and they're not for me. They're for the next generation. They're not for me. What I do in the 30 years is not going to benefit me. What I do in the next 30 years with your help is to benefit the next generation that will enjoy what we build. We might, not, we might be like the generation of Moses where we lead them to the promise, but we will never enjoy the promise like they will. 
We will never. We will be the ones who built it, who platformed our children and put them on our shoulders so that they can see farther than we ever saw. That is, that is what we are called to do here. And this, even this, this is still, we're still just following the call just to be a believer, just to be a disciple. This still should be our attitude. That we are called to Christ to be followers, to bear the responsibility of witnessing the good news to the next generation. Often the opportunity of understanding the call of God, listen, on our life uh, uh, at times is confused. And, and sometimes even in this moment, we can be confused between the simple call to follow Christ and the simple call to it's something more. It, it, it isn't easy. But the purpose of the call of ministry is not something that we create. It's something that only the Lord can create. So how does it go from follower to apostle? Well, that's the Lord. There's only one way that happens. Only the Lord can put this drive into you to be, do something more. Only the Lord can give you that thought in that moment when you're looking through uh, uh, the newspaper and you're looking at properties and go, no. Not only no, but I need, to take the, I need you to give me that, Jim. I need you to give me that desire from your heart. Pluck the root out of it and hand it to me so that you never secretly just want this. You only secretly want me. What does that? Well, the Holy Spirit does it. And it's not something to be taken lightly either because it's really the call to lead. When you start to step into a, a higher call or a divine call where you're, fo where you're following is in, in basically discipleship begins to turn into one of these ministry offices all of a sudden. And by the way, I, think, I believe all of us have some sort of a gift or that the Lord's equipped you to do to do ministry. You all have or bear witness of some kind of office because, by the way, there's fivefold ministry. And if I'm the pastor, then what are you? Who's the apostle? Who's the prophet? Who's the teacher? Such as are some of you. And this is the call to lead. But even the call to lead is, is difficult to understand. Mark 9, 35. We talked about this. Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. So when I say, who would like to lead? There's a lot of people who would raise their hands. Now, who would like to serve? Well, that's a different thing. When I say lead, we don't think of serve. If I, if I told you that leading meant being on your knees the whole time, how many of you probably volunteer for that? Because that's really what it really is. How can I help you? How can I take the desires of my heart, heart push them aside, the things that I want to do in my life, make those things number two, and make your things number one? Can you do that? Can you put your life on hold for the lives of others? By the way, Jesus asked this. All, any call to ministry isn't the call to lead, it's the call to selflessly serve the church like Jesus did. Eventually, this divine call will lead you into one of the fivefold ministries found in Ephesians 4. And it's right there around verse 11. Verse 11, Ephesians 4 says, Now these are the gifts Christ gave the church. We just said them, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, teachers. These are the people who are called to the ministries. They're called gifts. That's what they are. They are gifts to the church from Jesus. They are here for a purpose. For the apostle, their purpose is to be pioneers of the faith. For the prophet, they're basically here to declare and proclaim all the prophetic truth God wants to give to us. For the evangelist, like Kyle coming in next week, his call is to go make the name of Jesus known and make his glory known and, and win others to Jesus Christ. For the pastor, they're here to tend and care for the flock and make sure that they're okay, right? And then for teachers, they're here to instruct and bring wisdom and understanding to the scriptures. 
All of these gifted offices exist to equip the followers. <laughs> they work side by side. One is for the other. Ephesians 4.12, he names the gifts, all of these offices in, in verse 11. And then listen to verse 12. He says this, their responsibility, referring now to the five ministries there, is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ, not build it up brick by brick, build it up heart by heart, heart by heart. These offices do not exist so that they can be glorified. They exist to glorify the name of Jesus. They exist not to glorify church or organizations. They exist to build up people, to create more followers, to create more disciples. And even the word equip has a twofold definition. The first being to supply with the necessary items for a particular purpose. And the second, to prepare someone mentally for a particular situation or a task. So to resource them and help them be ready for it when it happens. All of these ministry gifts exist to support the church. They are gifts to the church for the church. This, when, when, when these things get abused is when we see bad things, right? This is when we see the bad things. But the divine call comes from Christ. How do you know if you're called or divinely called into one of these offices? Christ will confirm it in you. He will confirm it through you. Others will testify of it too. Paul explained it this way, 1 Corinthians 9, 16. Yet preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I am compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. How will you know? You will be compelled to do it. You won't even be able to escape the tugging of the Holy Spirit, which is drawing you to it. Now, for me, it looked like I, I got in early on uh, in my late 20s, just coming out of alcohol, really, and still kind of had that, uh, you know, kind of a struggle, but really had stopped uh, uh, drinking altogether and stopped all the, the big stuff because I'd really gotten radically saved. And, and when I say radically saved, I mean my life got turned around. I met Jesus, was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I had an experience with God I can't explain kind of stuff. I knew that I didn't want any more of the old life after feeling what the new life could be like, and it began to transform my life. Now, I was lucky, Joy's grandfather, who was a Pentecostal preacher at the time, who began to say, hey, you want to come preach because he was really tired because he shouldn't in his right mind let me preach because it was horrible. And, uh, but he would let me do it, and he kind of fostered that in me, kind of took me underneath uh, uh, his wings, so to speak, and began to allow me just the space or the platform. And the great thing about it, you know, is when you see a young man on fire, I understand it now as I'm older, but when you see a young man on fire, you're like, it's just like watching a campfire. How many of you have been mesmerized just looking at a campfire? You can just like, I could stare at this fire for an hour. Like all it does is just flame up and stuff, but you can just, you know, your eyes get lost into the gaze of a flame. It's, I think it's the same way with a young preacher. Like, I, I mean, there were times where I look back and even see young preachers today and go, yeah, their preaching was horrible, but he sure is on fire. <laughs> you know, that's like the worst preaching ever, but my gosh, is he, oof. like I would still follow him, <laughs> you know, like I could tell he's really excited, you know, and, 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 and that's the glory of the Lord. We see the Lord in these things. Well, I remember for me that I wasn't very good at it, and I began to be frustrated with things that I saw in the church and, and, and uh, um, uh, things that I was witnessing in the church in leadership, and leadership, and, and, and all of a sudden I was young and being privy to information. I didn't want to know. You know, I, didn't, I wanted to believe that everything in the church was good, and when I first came in, I thought the church was the answer and that all this, that pe these people have it together, and, and look at how much they love Jesus. They must be pretty good people, and then you get in there and you realize, no, they're really just people that come to church. That's what they are, and, and they love Jesus on Sunday, but they are mean 
mean right after service, and, and, and uh, they're not like sometimes the most friendliest people at times. And, and, I, and I was naive to a lot of what the reality of the church is, and I began to be bitter, and I'm like, God, I don't want this. I don't want this. So I walked away from it, and I, I didn't want to have anything to do with it, and somehow I always ended up like on the right hand of a pastor somewhere because I did love to talk about the Lord. I did love to learn about the Lord. The one thing that could not be taken from me is my love and my heart for Jesus. I would study the scriptures. I would, I would read about him. Nobody was going to take that from me. You know, you could take church from me. That's fine, but you're not going to take Jesus from me. That's kind of how I felt about it. And I still was reading, and I remember uh, uh, finally making, you know, I go through another pastor. It's a bad ordeal. This pastor that we're, me and Joy are going to church there, he ends up having an affair with his wife, which early I'd already told Joy, it's like, I'm not sure something's going on with him because his doctrine's horrible. I can usually tell when a pastor's going downhill when he starts preaching things that ain't right. And, 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 and I was like, he ends up having a, an affair and has to admit it in front of the whole congregation. I was like, okay, I guess we're going somewhere else. And, and, and we go to this other place of this pastor who's been at the first assembly in Terrell, who's been hounding us forever to come there. And uh, as soon as we get there, the youth pastor comes to us and says, hey, man, I think I've been praying you in. I was like, bro, well, you don't even know me. <laughs> and I'm not all that friendly with pastors. I have a trust issue with them because I've seen a lot of them fail. I see a lot of bad things in ministry from the back end of things. I said, and he goes, well, it, won't, it ain't going to matter to me because I'm telling you, I prayed you in. And I began to talk to this young man. I say young man, he was a couple years younger than me. And, and uh, we began to foster a friendship that I would eventually work with him. And as I was with him, he began to see the call of God in my life and started secretly to me engineering that, that position to happen. He started paying for me to go to all the camps and paying for me to go to conferences and just making me his right hand. And I thought, cool, we're just fostering this friendship. But really, he was secretly plotting against me to make me a pastor. And, uh, and what ended up happening is I go to my very first youth camp. Never went as a kid. Never went as a kid. We didn't grow up in the church. First time seeing kids that between the ages of 13 and 17 uh, come to a worship service where all they did is crowd the front. I wish adults were like this. I, I always say that Youth camp is what church is supposed to be before they become adults and ruin it. And it's true. <laughs> because it's so, at, when they come to youth camp, there's no more cliques because their school ain't there. So the cliques change. The ones that would never talk during school, they talk at youth camp. And all the cliques go away. And all of them get friendly all of a sudden. And then there is this legitimate desire to pursue the Lord. You know why? Because there's this giant group that wants to. And, and teenagers who are so heavily influenced by the masses, if everybody's going to Jesus, they're curious. They want to see if that's, that's the way it is. So you know what they do? They don't sit in their chair and act all reserved. Teenagers are great because kids are the same way too. Little kids are the same way too. They don't have the reservation. They will dance before the Lord. They don't care what somebody else thinks. They, they, they're not there yet where they get embarrassed just yet. You know, If their friends are doing it, they'll do it. And, and, and that groupness comes up to the stage and begins to worship and you hear them all start to sing and you hear them start to dance and you see them you see them raise their hands right and then the altar time comes and what happened is that that time they said we want all those adults that have come to be like youth sponsors or adult sponsors to come up to the front we want you to pray for these kids and they begin to seek out to these kids now listen if you're struggling with something we want you to come to these youth sponsors begin to pray and and uh, uh and he was talking about relationships restoring relationships that night and i remember these guys coming up to me, and it was these two kids, and I won't forget them. I'm trying not to cry. It, I have, even though he's heard me tell the story, you know I cry just about every time uh, because it's, I heard the Lord's voice in the middle of this. So this first kid comes to me, and he's like 14, and he's like, man, my parents don't love me. And I'm like, what? 
come on, you're here at church service. I mean, you're at a church service. Somebody loves you. I mean, you know, how did you get here? He's like, oh, man, I'm telling you, I'm just, my parents don't love me. He says, dude, he said, they are, uh, check this out. He says, they are letting me have unfiltered internet access, and I'm looking at things I shouldn't be looking at. I was like, what? What? So your parents give you freedom. And because those rules aren't set in place to protect you, you automatically take it to the place, then they must not love you because they don't have rules to set up to protect you. That should blow your mind with teenagers. By the way, we used to say in youth ministry, you know us, if you've heard us here say it, we say rules mean I love you. Rules mean I love you. That's why I'm not, I'm not going to lie, I'm not probably the biggest fan of this whole no rules, just Jesus thing, but I'm going to tell you something right now. We associate rules with love. We do. When their kids are little, well, like I already did what you said I do and I didn't die. I know you didn't die because I backed the fence so far up from the cliff that even if you jumped the fence, you weren't stupid enough to run too far. You just were, you were just were enamored by the fence, right? No, I set up rules far away so that you wouldn't die when you did jump over because I knew you'd be curious, right? I set up rules in your life to help you, not hurt you, right? There are standards in the Bible Listen, God forgives when you break the standards, right? That's, whole, that's what repentance forgiveness is about. But make no mistake, standards are set in the Bible to keep you safe. <laughs> Rules are in the Bible because he loves you. It's not, well, you, well it's legalism, pastor. It's, you know, God still loves me if we break the rules. Yes, he does. But if you love him, you'd keep them. Because God also says that the, the best thing that he loves more than anything else is not sacrifice what you give up to do for others. What he loves is obedience. So this young man comes to me, man, and I'm like hugging him. He's crying. I'm crying. Like just bawling like a big baby. The next kid comes up and he's littler. He's like this big. He's like in my chest. My dad doesn't love me. He never tells me. I was like, oh, my gosh. I'm just weeping for these kids. And then there's this moment where we're just praying. And in the, in, the, in the moment of this praying, and even as loud as it is, because if you had been to a youth church camp, it's loud. I hear the Lord's voice. It's like all the music goes quiet, and I hear the Lord's voice. And he goes, what are you doing? You know you're supposed to be doing this. This is what I, this is what I called you to do. This is where I've called you to be. You know that this is what, this, you feel that in your heart, what you want to do. That's it. This is it right here. Let go. Let go of your job. I know you enjoy your house, and I know you enjoy your swimming pool, and I know you enjoy your cars. Let go of those things. Let me give you this all the time. How you feel right now, let me give you this. Let me give you a purpose where you get to feel this all the time. Let me give you this. Quit. Quit running. And, man, from that moment, I surrendered. Went back, and I started getting all my studies together. Started taking these courses, and Becoming a, an Assembly of God minister, which would eventually would lead me down here a few years later. We would sell our house, leave everything behind, all the friends that we'd known our entire life to come down here and live down here and serve down here. Been here ever since. Best decision I ever made. Best decision I ever made. You cannot escape the Holy Spirit when it's drawing you to something. You cannot escape it. Will you be risking... An, Will you be willing to risk enough to go after it? That's the hard part. That's the hard part. And the other thing is, too, that I would never told. It was undersold to me the difficulty of the ministry. 
You know, when they tell you about receiving the call to ministry, and I'd heard a lot of sermons on that, uh, I never heard them say like, oh yeah, it's hard, but there was no really description into how hard it ever was, right? Oh man, it's hard. It's hard being a pastor. Yeah, it looks it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I go to a job every day where everybody cusses, and well, not, not my job now, but at the time, where everybody cusses, the guys you work for aren't the nicest guys around. You really don't want to be there. I sit in an hour and a half of traffic, getting there an hour and a half on the way home. Uh, it doesn't seem, Pastor, like you're struggling like I struggle. I'm just saying. Seems like you get paid to pray and go read the Bible. That's why you're pretty good at it on Sunday. Just saying. And, and at first, I think that's what we see, right? Praise the Lord, maybe because pastors are humble. They don't show you all the difficulties. But there, it, it's, here's the truth. It's hard. It's hard, mainly because of you, me, right? My own personality, the selfish things that I want in my life, the things that I want to live for sometimes are just me. You know how many times I just want to be lazy and miss church? Mm. Don't even ask Joy. Mm-hmm. Let me give you some statistical truths about how hard it is. Roughly 1,700 pastors leave the ministry each month. 50% of ministers starting out will not last five years. Think about that. How many kids? I used to see people, we were sending them to Sagu all the time, Southwestern Assembly of God University to become ministers. And I was like, it doesn't matter how many graduated there, 50% maybe all last five years. Those, those the other 50% that quit, they won't quit because they were weaklings. They will quit because they had some false idea about what ministry was. They thought they were maybe going to be the rock star who got to stand under the red and purple lights and look awesome when they were preaching. But that's not how it is. Truth be told, big ministries are like 20%. Majority of the ministries out there are less than 100 people. You want to know who the heroes of the faith are? The pastors who have less than 100 people. That's 80% of the church out there. If we were to lose all the mega churches in Austin, nobody would miss anything because 80% of the churches out there are less than 100. You know what would happen? Other churches would just see growth. That's the only thing that would happen because you'd only be shooting down 20% of the church. Only 20%. That's it. But those 20%, I know they get a big voice. They have a lot of people, right? So they get a big voice. But that's the truth. 50% of ministers, they're not going to last five years. I see all kinds of people that, man, they have all kinds of zeal, all kinds of promise. They have all kinds of ideas, all kinds of opinions. But as soon as it gets hard, they're, they're, they're just not, it's too much. As soon as someone's mean to them, it's like first Sunday, right? It's not going to happen. It's not going to be there, right? 50% of pastors feel so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but they have no other way of making a living. What does that tell you about half the pastors that are in the pulpit right now? Half the pastors would leave the ministry to relax, right? So that they don't have to lead anymore. So they don't have to have the burdens of all these things anymore. They would do it if they had some other way to make a living. They don't know any other way. They've done it maybe either for so long or, or it's the only thing they ever trained in their life to do. But they'd leave it if they could. That scares me the most, I think. And the list goes on and on. Most pastors feel, and I didn't give all the statistics on this. I just kind of summed it up. They feel overworked, underpaid, unprepared. They struggle with depression and discouragement or lonely or have struggling families. Listen, I see pastors all the time. They lose their wives because their wives are going to go where, wherever the man who's going to show them attention is because they're so busy giving all their attention to the church, they forget and they neglect their family. And it's, it's part their problem, too, before we get mad at the wife. If you ain't going to be there for your wife, I promise you the devil is. Ask Adam and Eve. 
I, I can't tell you how many people I've seen that aren't in the ministry today because of just the meanness at times of the church. People who say ugly things. Or and I've watched them like here lately. There's this uh, there's this young lady that uh, I, I saw in youth camp one year, and, and they did this they did this beautiful uh, kind of ensemble video. And she just got to be a part of it. And one of the things they were asking her is like what God was doing for her there while she was at boot camp or while she was at church camping. And uh, one of the things that she said that I'll never forget, she's like, you know, the Lord's doing this inside. I mean, there's all this like normal stuff that kids going to say. She goes, one thing I know is that I she goes that that this if it's happened to me, it can happen to anyone else. She goes, and God's going to use me for the for his glory. And then she said this. She goes and I she goes, just mark my words that I am the remedy of. Of, of what is it? I am the remedy for a generation, and I was like, "Man, that's so powerful! That is so powerful of a thing to speak." Of. You know, like that she's so on fire, she's so z- zealous, right? That she believes that all oh, man that that the Holy Spirit and the things that He's doing with these teenagers is the remedy of a generation. Like in today, in today, she's struggling. She's lost into homosexuality. She's left the church, and and I'm friends with her on Facebook, and I try to encourage her every chance I can. And I just met her the one time. I was like, I had to tell her. I said, I cried my eyes out when I heard you speak. Like. I saw so much anointing and passion and purpose in you. Like I would have said that this person's going to go on to be the most unbelievable young person I've ever seen in my life. And today she's not doing anything for the Lord. Yeah, I saw another uh, guy who was singing back in the, in the uh, early 2000s, late 90s. Un- phenomen- a phenomenal worship leader. Was on the track, was doing like some big stuff with a lot of churches and was just, just amazing. But out of the blue, all of a sudden is bipolar. And, and here he is rising up in ministry, doing great things for the Lord, loves Jesus with all his heart. And then all of a sudden he's psychologically unfit to do anything. Never is in the ministry again. Out of the blue. I've seen, I, I've seen people all the time grow up in church and love church and everything. And then they're young in church and then older generations are just mean at times, man. And now they're no longer in church. I'm telling you, if I've seen so many people just not make it, just not make it. It's it's uh, it's soul crushing. Is really what it is. It's hard. Ministry's hard. It doesn't matter how amazing your gift is or how great your talent is. You have to be rooted in Christ. That follower part, that disciple part, I don't care how great your divine call or your divine gift or your divine talent is. That follower part where you're connected with God, where you're with Jesus, if that thing is not spot on, the church will eat you alive. We tell people all the time that are pastors, if you're pastoring and, you have, and you're married as your pastor, you better protect that because the church is out to kill it. Because everybody wants your time as the pastor, and everybody wants your wife, and everybody... Listen, this is just the way it is, guys. Listen, if you think about the call of life, you're going to be a Christian, and you're going to be discipling someone as a follower of Christ, which you're called to do, they're going to want your time. And it's going to be up to you to know when to guard it and when to give it. When to guard it and when to give it. There's no way around not doing it. You're all called to go and make disciples. The question is, is when to guard that time and when to give that time. I would suggest you work as a team. <laughs> you work as a team. When in all possible in youth ministry, one of the things we did early on, me and Joy worked together. We invite people to our house all the time. There's a reason the Bible says 
You need to be, your household needs to be in order because people need to come over there. People need to come over there because you'll do ministry better in your home than you will like in a place like this. You will because it's your home. People see the inside of you. Nobody wants, listen, the, the pastor you meet here is the same one you're going to meet at my house, yes, but when you come to my house, you're seeing the inside, I'm taking you to my most vulnerable place and you get to see the inside of it. There's a lot to that. It means we're, we're more than just, a, uh, I call them face friends. We're more than just friends to each other's face. I actually brought you to my home. You need to come to my home. And at some point, all of you, at any of you, you're more than welcome to come to my home. There's never a time where my home's ever going to be off limits. No, I, there's never a time I turn my phone off, guys. I'm a pastor. I don't feel like I get that luxury. That's the way I feel about it. I feel like if you need somebody at 2 in the morning and you need to call somebody, you need to call. Get it done. That's what God's called me to do, to take your phone call at 2. Yeah, that's how it is. Welcome to divine call. Divine call means it's no longer about you. It's about everybody else. How anti-culture is that? Seriously, in a culture that says you are first and everything else is second, ministry says everybody else is first, you're second. The only way you can maintain that is a strong connect, the, the primary, the following of Jesus Christ has to be solid. And we need more people who are divinely called, but let's not be ignorant of what was being called to literally wrote this in my notes. The church is full of selfish people with sharp tongues and depraved hearts. It's the truth. There's some people who are so good at sarcasm and criticism. They're like expert level pro, man. They say it in a way like where they're able to smile and like, I'm pretty sure you just cut me down. Like, like you did it with such a smile and such elegance with your words. Like, like I didn't recognize it, but man, did I feel that. Right? But listen, it's for these people that Jesus came. Right? If you could stay focused on Jesus, you'll be reminded that first, you are not better. You were once like them. They just need Jesus like you needed Jesus. In Christ, you remind yourself that this divine call is a gift from God to help you just like they need you to help them. I love Pastor Rick who said this. Some of us are pastors because if we aren't, we probably wouldn't be saved. <laughs> it forces us to constantly be with Jesus. And in constantly being with Jesus, we find our own salvation. I think that's so true. In Christ, you remind yourself that divine calls to give from God to help you just like you need to help them. In this way, you're not only a gift to them from Christ, but here's the truth. They say this all the time, but that also, uh, they say pastors are a gift to the congregation. But the truth is, too, is that the congregation is the gift to the pastor. Make no mistake. It's a beautiful dance. It's welcome to, the, to me, like, you know, me being the romantic. My kids will tell you I'm a big romantic. To me, it's the love story of my life, man pastoring is a giant love story where I love, I love the church. Now, I have to be careful. I, let me say this, and, and we'll kind of work towards closing. Um, I love the church. I love the church, but I've had even the Lord tell me at times, you know that's my wife, right? Not yours. I'm just saying, you are the groomsman. Do not mistake your place in the line. You were here to watch me marry my church. You are here to hold my place while I've yet to arrive. But she is not your wife. Treat her with respect as my wife. Don't fall too in love with her. It's my wife. <laughs> Don't take advantage too much of her. It's my wife. Right? There has to be this careful balance in what we do with the church. People can talk about the church all the time, but I'm going to tell you right now. Talk about my wife. See what happens. 
You want to see the unpastorly part of me come out? Talk about my wife, see what happens. Right? You want to see the unpastorly part? Talk about my friends, see what happens. I'll correct you in a heartbeat. Right? Can I tell you, Jesus, it's the same way when I hear people talk, well, man, even when I, know, when I know that people have been hurt by church and they're saying things that I heard, that's totally different. But when I hear people talk bad about church, I'm going to be the first one who's like, you got to stop there, right? You know you're talking about Jesus' wife. The very person that saves you, the very person that died for you, he died for them. All of them, the good and the bad. All of that he died for, right? That, that he esteemed worth it. Before you start talking about it, understand what you're talking about. The very thing, if anybody's more passionate than me about the church, about these people who were mean at times, who were sharp, who were, uh, uh, you know, clever and disguising about what they say and what they do and how they criticize and all the things we could say negative about the church, right? Jesus loves that side too. He died for that side too. And let's not forget, it's easy to focus on the negative. By the way, when anything is good, like a good review, there's always less good reviews than there are bad reviews, it seems like sometimes, because it's easy to hate something. But the truth of the matter is, the church does a lot of good. It does a lot of good. It's the moral backbone of this country. And when it starts to die off, which you're already seeing now, that's why the imperative of the gospel, we've been preaching it the whole year. That's why we've been staying around on the Holy Spirit, because I'm going to tell you right now, there ha- the only thing that's going to change the fiber of this community and the fiber of our country, our state, all of that, is if we're doing what Christ has called us to, which is to be the church, not, not be hearers, but doers. So whether it's a primary calling for you, I'm called to follow Christ, then who are you discipling? That's part of discipleship. Disciples make disciples. So who are you discipling? Is it your kids? Are you, by the way, if it is your kids, are you reading them Bible stories? How are you mentoring Jesus into their life? Can I, man, if I bring Rachel in here, do you want to hear all the things that she can recite? And I don't mean Bible stories. I'll show what she'll tell you is spiritual leadership. She has all the cliche sayings that we like to say, right? If you're not praying, you're playing. Right? We never change until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. She'll start quoting you all the spiritual leadership stuff, right? That's why she's been trained up to be a leader. She's been trained up like that. Started at a small age. Started speaking that into her life. Started telling her these things. It's intentional. My kids turned out a certain way because it was on purpose. Be intentional. How are you making disciples? Do you have somebody you are disciple? If it's your kids, start reading them Bible stories. Start talking to them, right? Encouraging them. Speaking life over them, right? Uh, by the way, you and your spouse. That needs to happen that way too. There are times where I tell Joy we'll have a conversation. She'll be so down and so out. There's times where I'm the husband and I go, hey, listen, you know, I love you. You know, I love you. I'm kind of walking with her in her hand. And I go, can I put on the pastor's hat? And she'll go, okay, right? And I'll say, as a pastor, this is what I would say. And I get, try to give her spiritual advice almost from like a, a separateness from our relationship. And go, listen, as your husband... I love you. I'll walk with you through this and however you want to go through it. But as your pastor, this is how I think you should do it. And this is what I would be doing. And this is what I would tell anyone else that was in this predicament. And I need you to receive that as a pastor. Let me let, one of the things that I've had to learn as a pastor, especially with an older generation, I've had to say this to a lot of older generation, let me pastor you. There's a lot of good pastors out there have been great pastors to many of you. But nobody... 
nobody just gets to pastor. You're not automatically a pastor. Somebody has to let you pastor. You have to let me pastor you. I've had, I've had guys who've been great mentors to me, and in the moment I go, hey, stop. Let me pastor you here. Allow me the opportunity to speak life into you now. Right? Let me pastor you here. I get on to my mentor. He does this to me all the time. You know, he'll, he'll be talking to me for a while, and he'll just be listening. And I notice, wait a minute, he's listening to me. And, it, and why I say that is because when we're talking back and forth, and it's this conversation back and forth, we're just friends. When he's just listening to me for a long period of time, wait a minute, you put on the pastor hat, and you didn't tell me. Or you're just listening to what I say because you're going to give me advice that I need to hear. And you recognize the moment more than I recognize the moment right there. And we've had big, long conversations about how that looks, but that's the truth of it. But there are times where your gift will come out in the weirdest times. And it might be prophetic. You might actually have the wisdom at times. And if you're a mom, you probably already understand this prophetic wisdom where you tell your kid, you ain't going to believe me, but this is about to be dumb. You're about to do something really stupid. I'm telling you because I know it. I can see it happening before it ever happens. That's called the gift of the prophetic. All right? It's a, and just like the prophets, you get received the same way. If you got kids, you know you're dumb. That's stupid. That's not going to happen. They told Jeremiah that too. They told Ezekiel that too. They told John the Baptist that too. Don't feel out of place. These gifts are yours. What are you called to? What are you called to? What gift is yours? What, What office is yours? How are you helping to equip the saints of God? This is for you to explore. Now we're going to get ready to do some worship, but the priority hasn't changed. These gifts develop through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you hadn't been baptized, I'm telling you, it, uh, man, I, I, I can lay hands on you, but that's not what makes somebody get baptized in the Holy Ghost. God does that when we repent and when we eagerly pray and wait for Him. So as we begin to sing these, these songs and as we get to worship, that's my prayer this morning, that you would just be uh, praying internally in your heart that, uh, that God would fill you with the Holy Spirit for what He's called you to do, for what He's called you to do. And there's no escaping the call. We are all called, whether to be followers or even something else, even something else. Let's get ready for worship.